Well, it's beginning to feel like spring here in the Popular Mechanics podcast studio. You know where else it's feeling like spring? Willow, Alaska. That's where the Iditarod Trail sled dog race starts every year. Except up there, it's a problem. The dogs in the Iditarod are at their best when it's 10 below, so temps closer to freezing are causing the race to be run a little different this year. On today's show, we'll find out how. Then we'll check in with John McKee of Headframe Spirits, whose new distillation technology is spreading from Butte, America, to lots of the rest of America. Finally, we'll discuss one of our editor's experiments with a hygiene regimen that skimps on showers, and we'll tell you if it's stupid or amazing. I'm Kevin Dupsick, and this is How Your World Works. In 1925, the coastal town of Nome, Alaska, was caught in a deadly diphtheria outbreak. The only cure was more than 500 miles away in Anchorage, and without a better way to cross the rugged Alaskan interior, the antitoxin ended up being carried by teams of mushers and sled dogs, who made the trip in just over five days. The trail they took, the Iditarod Trail, is now part of the famous Iditarod Trail sled dog race. This year's race, the 44th running, started on March 5th. Jay Bennett went to Anchorage to cover it for popularmechanics.com, and he called into our studio to explain how man and beast are coping with the heat. So you were up in Anchorage and uh, the town of Willow where the race actually starts. Were you like wearing shorts and a t-shirt or what? What does warm up there mean right now? Well, in Willow, where the official, they call it the restart of the race, which is the start of the timed race itself, uh, it was 40 degrees, uh, which was oh, very unseasonably warm. Uh, it's out on a frozen lake, and so the sun was bearing down, and uh, the dogs were definitely warmer than they usually are. So uh, you said it was, it was 40 at the starting point. So tell me, what, what would be normal? I mean, is that like 10 degrees above normal, 50 degrees above normal? Um, it's probably closer to, you know, 20 or 30 degrees above normal. In the past decade, there have been sub-zero temperatures at the start in Willow. Um, and so this year is definitely on one of the more extreme warm ends. Before we get too much into that, though, let's just step back and talk about what the race is. First run in 1973, uh, and the race goes from Willow, Alaska, which is just north of Anchorage, uh, to Nome, which is all the way to the northwest on the Bering Sea. Uh, and it's about a thousand mile trail. Um, I think officially it's 975, but they change the route uh, every alternate year, and so it's generally said to be about a thousand miles. Um, they have checkpoints along the way where they can pick up supplies that they've previously dropped off, but other than that, it's kind of an unsupported race where the mushers are alone with their dogs for a significant amount of the time, you know, traveling through what is usually blizzard conditions, cold conditions, mm-hmm. uh, rough terrain. Um, and it, it generally takes them about 9 to 12 days to finish, although it has taken much longer than 20 in the past. So I actually saw online that the, the start of the snow, and I guess, so you said there's, it's kind of like the restart in Willow where it's actually the timing starts, but the, I don't know, ceremonial starts in Anchorage, and I read that they actually had to bring in snow from the outside. Yes, the ceremonial start in Anchorage uh, is usually 11 miles right from downtown in the middle of the city out to an airfield. Uh, but this year, because of the lack of snow, they had to shorten it to three miles, and they had to bring snow in on the Alaska <laughs> Railroad from Fairbanks, which is about 350 miles to the north. Oh, my gosh. Um, so setting the ceremonial start aside, when you're running in with the, with the snow conditions this year, I mean, are they using, like, different equipment? Absolutely. Uh, a lot of the mushers that I spoke to are using heavier sleds, uh, sturdier sleds, uh, because they know that the... Trail conditions are going to be just a thin layer of snow over rocks and ice and grass, particularly for the first about third of the race, about 350 miles to start the race. They're mm-hmm. going to be contending with some real rough conditions, and so they're bringing these bigger, sturdier sleds that are a little less agile uh, so they can kind of ram them through any of the 
rough trail that they encounter. One thing that was kind of interesting is a lot of them uh, are smaller than in typical years. A lot of the mushers actually uh, will swap out larger, stronger dogs for smaller dogs that are less likely to uh, get dehydrated or uh, suffer from heat exhaustion. A lot of the mushers are intentionally saying that they're going to take it really easy for the first few legs of the race. Uh, they're going to let the animals kind of set the pace and not push them. Um, and they're they're definitely slowing down and taking their time to, to get through those first checkpoints. So is there any kind of trade-off, though, where, like, I don't know, if, since it's it's less cold, you kind of have to bring less gear than you would to deal with the really, really cold temperatures, and that can kind of lighten the loads? So they carry uh, a certain amount of food, uh, food for the dogs, food for themselves, clothing, um, you know, some basic shelter items like a tent if they're planning on camping on the side. Uh, and then they actually send a lot of their supplies to checkpoints along the way. There are 21 checkpoints between the start and the finish line, and so they have a drop bag at each one where they can pick up more food, so they don't need to carry everything on the sled that they need. Um, and this year, uh, in addition to sending, you know, some thicker clothing uh, and some, you know, more hand warmers and things like that, they're going to help them in the colder conditions in the second half of the race ahead to a strategic checkpoint. They also uh, are sending lighter sleds, more agile sleds. So they can pick them up when the conditions change and actually go a little bit faster for that second half of the race. So I don't know how many dogs are on a, on a team typically. Are you kind of like pulling from a whole bench of dogs and you choose like the eight that are best for the first leg of the race and then maybe you pick, well, I, I mean, I say eight, but you tell me how many there are. Um, or do you pick like one set of dogs and that's who's you're taking, they're taking you a thousand miles? So they begin the race with 16, uh, and those are your dogs for the entire race, although they will drop dogs along the way uh, if the dogs are getting too tired to continue to run or they will get ankle and leg injuries from time to time, and so they drop them off at the checkpoints, and then they're actually picked up by what's called the Iditarod Air Force, which are Alaskan bush pilots that come in to run supplies and pick up dogs what? for the race. Mm -hmm. That is cool. That is really cool. The Iditarod Air Force. Yes. Okay, so you start with six, 16 dogs and you may drop some off. Do you think that will change this year, like how many dogs are, are not running the full distance? Uh, so, yes, they're going to start with 16 dogs, and I uh, don't know if I mentioned that they have to finish the race with six. Um, and so you definitely have to factor that into your strategy and knowing that you need to keep you know, a number of the animals healthy and fed and uh, energetic just, just to get to the end of the race. But uh, it's certainly possible that we would see more dogs getting dropped off this year because uh, of the hot temperatures at the beginning forcing them to, you know, pull them out because of dehydration. So, I, I mean, I imagine a lot of these guys either breed their own dogs or they're like specialty breeders um, for, for sledding dogs. And I'm just sort of curious, you know, with the temperatures warming, you said it was El Nino. I would guess that, you know, climate change has some effect here. Just out of curiosity, do you know if any... Um, you know, breeders are kind of shifting a focus towards dogs that are, are better in the heat? They are. They are. And they've started doing that in the past four or five years because uh, the race has actually been on the warmer end um, for the past, you know, half decade or so. Just last year, they had to move the official start of the race from Willow, Alaska, up to Fairbanks. Um, and so the breeders have taken note of that. And these dogs uh, are generally ready to run when they're just two or three years old. And so there has already been enough time for them to breed some smaller dogs for the warmer temperatures. Hmm, that's interesting. Okay, so here's the big question. I, I was just looking at the, the past year uh, winners, and I noticed that in the last, I think, four years, it's been two, only two guys have won in the last four years, and they're a father and son. 
Are they still the favorites, or is this gonna is this you know the change in strategy and conditions gonna give somebody else a chance to swoop in this year and take it away? They're still favorites. Uh, Dallas and Mitch CV, although there are a, lo- a number of strong competitors, but they won in these recent years where it's also been worn, and so they have uh, you know some experience with the kind of rough trail conditions and the low levels of snow. Um, and as of right now, they are right in front of the pack, so they're definitely favorites to finish in the top ten. Al Capone, the famous Chicago mobster, once said, When I sell liquor, it's called bootlegging. When my patrons serve it on Lakeshore Drive, it's called hospitality. John McKee of Headframe Spirits out of Butte, Montana, who was recently in Chicago himself testing out an all-new type of American whiskey, can probably relate. He invented a new type of still in his rough old mining town, but now it's being installed by distillers as far away as Nantucket. Peter Martin talked to him about the new distillation process and what it means for micro-distillers. So, John, maybe first thing, if you could just step back and explain to us kind of what distillation is and what you start with. What's the, what's the base liquid that goes in that you put into the still? You got it. So I'm going to blow your mind, and I'm sorry, but here we go. Um, all whiskey, vodka, you know, all it is is beer. Okay, yeah. so we take and we make we take grain, you know, corn or rye or wheat, and we mash that, and then like in a mash tun, like you would see in a brewery, and then we push that over to a fermenter, like you would see in a brewery, and what's once it's done fermenting, we call it distiller's beer. Really, the only difference between us and a brewery, other than the fact that we have a distil- uh, distillation system too, is that we don't put hops in our distiller's beer. So we mash, we ferment, and what's in the fermenter is called distiller's beer. We take the distiller's beer over to the stills, and then the stills, the uh, distiller's beer gets cut apart into three things, if you will. One is your heads, and your heads are your um, uh, your methanols and your, your nail polish removal, your unsavory compound. You've got your hearts which is your ethanol. Sometimes you'll hear me refer to that as hooch. Um, but basically, that's your good stuff. That's the stuff you want to drink. And then your tail um, is the third thing that you're, you're taking apart from that distiller's beer. Your, the tails are usually comprised of things called fusel oils or heavier flavor compounds that are unfavorable in your final product as well. And, um, and so that's really what we do is we're just a brewery except I don't know, we make it a little more cool than that. We take a beer and we distill the beer to get the alcohol out of it. And when we get the alcohol out of the beer, we then take that alcohol and split it into three parts, the heads, the hearts, and the tails. Could you just walk us through briefly a a traditional pot still and how how most artisanal distilleries work? Sure. Uh, The way we kind of try to describe it to people is, you know, a batch distillation is a very simple system. It's a tea kettle. Mm -hmm. You go home and you throw your dirty kettle on and, steam starts coming out the whistle, well, that is a batch distillation. And the, the distilled thing that's coming out at that time is, you know, basically water vapor. But, like, within a batch still, what happens is eventually, you know, if you let it run long enough, everything just boils out. you got nothing left to boil. And it, in sort of continuing that analogy, a continuous distillation system is still, in some regards, is still a tea kettle. But what's happening is, is as we're boiling things out, we're putting in new material at the same rate. So that allows the system just to continue to run rather than have to shut down, refill, reboil, shut down, refill, reboil. That sort of process that you would with your tea kettle. This is sort of just like a tea kettle that never runs out. So in terms of productivity, how much faster is a still like this versus just traditional pot stilling? We make 1,000 gallons of beer 
we'll push through our system every eight hours, and that'll be done. It's been, you want to be vodka, you want to be whiskey, we don't care. In eight hours, I mean, I'm shift. So it's it's quite a bit quite a bit more efficient. What you guys usually set up is usually a series of three or four different uh, column stills, right? That's right. And we had spoken about how ideally that could just be one really tall still. Uh, but nobody right. really has the space for that. Nobody has the, the roof clearance for that sort of thing. Um, right. And is that, that's because as you, the different things boil off at different temperatures. So just the higher it rises in the still, the more of the impurities boil off. That's correct. Or more of the impurities are left behind, if you will. You can think about on our columns, the thing that comes out the bottom of the columns is the tail. It's got no alcohol in it, but it's all those other goofy, weird flavors that you don't want in a whiskey or you don't want in a vodka. And then your heads are coming off at the very, very end of the top of that column, where it is, that's your nail polish remover and that's your methanol. And then a point in between those two is where our good product comes out. And that's where we get our, you know, it could be vodka, it could be rye, it could be whiskey, it could be rum, tequila, it doesn't matter. That good product sort of comes out in the middle. And that's how a lot of continuous distillation works. So the good stuff just continues rising to the top until the very end when you want to pull it out before the head's... Or the only thing that's, that's right. Left. That's right. In our system, that's exactly how that works. So, is the is the art of you know sort of the micro distillation aspect of continuous distillation? Is that where you set the takeoff point and you're still like you set it at a different height than somebody else sets his, and that's where you kind of get the flavor differences? I guess along with the right. Bill. That's, that's a lot of it. There's two types of continuous stills. One of them, I and these are my phrases. So if you know you go looking this up, or a chemical engineer throws stones at us later, we'll tell them. <laughs> John said this, okay? But basically, you have two types of continuous stills. One's called the Goldilocks column, okay? And what I mean by that is if you feed it the right stuff at just the right rate, and you have just enough of energy going in the bottom, and you have just enough height on the column, then the stuff that comes out will be just right. Mm -hmm. And if any one of those things goes off, the column doesn't work. Where our system is a variable column system. We have the exact same outlet point. We just change how the column works to allow different things to get to that outlet point. And so that's why these Goldilocks columns, like Maker's Mark, they run a Goldilocks column. And it's perfect. And it's awesome because all they make is Maker's Mark. Right. And so all they have to do is make sure they're feeding it the right stuff. I got just the right amount of steam going in the bottom. And they will always have Maker's Mark come out. And if anything gets cocked up there, they don't make Maker's Mark. But the people to whom we were selling our systems, you know, they make whiskeys, they make vodkas, they make gins, they make tequilas, they make rums. And then I don't want to sell them 15 different columns for 15 right. different products. I wanted to sell them a variable column, a column that allows them to control those changes. Um, well, thanks, John. Thanks for walking through all this with us. Of course. This was awesome. All right, so I, I know you're all Iditarod fans, but there's actually another major sporting event in March. That is, of course, the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament. But here's the weird thing. The indelible image from the end of every March Madness tournament is a ladder. The winning team climbs up one to cut down the nets that just helped them claim victory, and the ladder that helps them claim the nets has been, since 2008, a Werner. And this year, little known fact, that ladder is getting some upgrades, including an oversized platform for the big men, a longer guardrail, and a magnetic lockup for scissors. I'd say it's ready for its one shining moment. Okay, so for today's Stupid or Amazing, I have Jackie and Peter here, and we're talking about something called Mother Dirt, which Jackie's been using to stay clean. Jackie, I think you just have to explain this. Yeah, you know what's funny is I feel like I'm always the stupid 
contingent on the Stupid or Amazing podcast. And this time, I'm the test subject, and I think it's amazing. Um, so this stuff is called Mother Dirt. It is a company that was started by a woman who got her degree at, um, at MIT. And she basically, there, there's been research on uh, bacteria that live on your skin for a lot of years. And right now, microbiomes are really a hot topic in mm-hmm. your gut. These people are drinking uh, kombucha, all that kind of stuff. This is a similar sort of idea, but for your skin. Um, and in, historically, humans, people, you think about like the 1800s. You yeah. think that, okay, humans must have stunk so bad back then. Like how bad did people smell? That's like a common thing. People are imagining the Middle Ages, people are in their armor and they just stink. Um, but there's a lot of theories that, you know, maybe that maybe people didn't. Maybe p- being covered in dirt isn't such a bad idea. Um, and there's a lot of research actually in um, in allergy studies and immunology yeah. that maybe uh, there's something called the hygiene hypothesis, for example, which I think we actually talked about on this podcast before about uh, Peter's hand washing. <laughs> Peter's, <laughs> Peter's one hand theory. theory, his debunked one hand <laughs> yeah. theory. Um, it, basically, the idea is that if your immune system doesn't have something external to fight, then it will just pick other things that aren't necessary to fight. So like peanuts or uh, pet dander or, you know, itself. And that's still just a theory, but there's a fair amount of evidence for it in my understanding. Basically, there's three elements right now, and I think they're doing some uh, continuing science. But the first thing that they're doing is what's called an AO plus mist. Uh, The the mist is the, the... cornerstone of it. And it's live bacteria like a yogurt or like a kombucha. And they're uh, particularly, I think they're nitrosomonas, which are ammonia oxidizing bacteria, AOB. Um, And so in your sweat, you have ammonia and you also have urea. And these bacteria, when they live on your skin, they eat the ammonia and the bacteria and they release nitrate and nitric oxide. And uh, I feel like I'm giving a class here. But do you want to like? Do you want to? When are you going to start insulting my hygiene? Um, the sniff test will be the first thing okay. I'm waiting for. Yeah. Um, this so, is great science, but Peter's just going to vote based. He's on just going to vote based on I know. How long have you been doing this? Uh, so I've been doing. I keep smelling my armpits because I'm like nervous now, uh, which probably will find it's going to make it worse. Um, so I've been doing this for two weeks, and um, my big thing: what you're supposed to do. If you're really going to do it like hardcore, and I don't know that I'm kind of a hippie, but I'm not hippie enough, I think, for this. You're supposed to spray it on yourself twice a day, which is which I have been doing. But you're also supposed to only wash if you're if you're going to do it right. You're supposed to only wash your hair and your body with their uh, microbiome friendly cleansers, because basically anytime you use something with preservatives or use a soap, it just wipes the these, these bacteria are kind of sensitive to that stuff. Yeah. See, I think the trick with something like this is it's that you have to overcome just the what you've been doing your whole life, which is like, oh, I'm going to smell bad if I don't put on deodorant. I'm going to not be clean if I don't wash myself with soap and shampoo. And I think that, like, if I were somebody with perfectly healthy skin, like, Peter, you seem very no, lustrous. I have dry skin. I don't know. I, I would use this. I don't, think I, I don't think I could do it. I actually have eczema, and I've actually read before that the microbiome is that's kind of come in vogue. That's become one theory of something that could help eczema, which, as far as I understand it, is kind of like a this, thing you were talking about. It's sort of like yeah. your immune system sort of attacking itself for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, it's like, yeah, maybe I would try this. It depends how much I feel like it's like a snake oil thing. Like on their website, their like video starts out by saying there's something magic about dirt, which just makes right. me less likely right. to buy I, it. But yeah. I mean, it's, it's, if, if it's working for you, I actually think I could see myself maybe doing it. This yeah. seems worth it. It yeah. has a fair amount of science behind it in my reading, um, which, is, which I'm a pretty science heavy person. I can see why they would go to this appeal to dirt because that's the trendiness right now. That's what I actually was, I was talking to a couple of 
of women the other day who are not the kind of people, they're not campers. They're not the kind <laughs> of people who want to spray themselves with bacteria. It was and very I was graceful like, the way you did that. Well, thank you. Um, and I was, I was explaining what I was doing and their faces were just horrified. They were like, you haven't, you're not wearing deodorant? My God. Like it was, it was like they were going to oust me from our dinner. And, <laughs> and, I, and then I said, well, but it's kind of like kombucha for your skin. And, both, and I was like, and, and the, one of the theories is that it might work it might work better than dry shampoo for your hair. And both of them immediately were like, well, maybe I'd try that. <laughs> you know, so it's like, I'm, I can see why they would make this sort of emotional appeal to like the dirt and the land because yeah. that's, that's trendy. If you're a marketing professional right now, that's, that's what you do. That's yeah. what I'd do. So can you guys, are, are, do you smell me right now? Like, you don't, I don't stink, I don't right? smell any BO in this room. Yeah. It's pretty and small, and we've been in here for a little while. <laughs> I don't, and we both sit within five or ten feet of you that's and true. have not yeah. noticed any problems. Yeah. So, so okay, success. so you're saying amazing because you're. I'm 100. Yeah, you almost drank it. You really like it. I was an accident. <laughs> what do you think, Peter? I actually think, I think amazing, but I would not do the deodorant part. I would wear deodorant and I would use this just to try to not have to put lotion on my arms in the morning, <laughs> <laughs> just to, to avoid dry skin. If it fixed dry yeah. skin, I think that'd be great, and it's worth 50 bucks a month instead of buying fancy lotions. Yeah, which are also close. Yeah. To, I mean, if I if I could stop buying the fancy lotions for my face, which I haven't really quit yet but those are like a hundred dollars those, those are really expensive yeah. you know if this is better then why not? yeah no i think it seems pretty good that 50 dollars a month seems like a lot but i'm sure if i actually stopped and added up soap shampoo lotion it's pretty probably as far this this seems amazing i would do this cool wow do you want to this is, is, that, that, the, is that the first, that the first unanimous amazing yeah it's, go, go mother dirt do you want to spray it on your spray it on your eczema do you have any on your arm <laughs> I, I do on my hand Here, right spray now it on your hand. all right i mean it's not gonna go away right away well no i know but you might as well we can check back in this thing's it's a miracle this this thing's weekly (laughs) so that's our show how your world works is produced by the staff of popular mechanics and edited by jack dylan we'd like to thank sarah bentley and andy bowers from panoply and popular mechanics editor-in-chief ryan d'agostino please subscribe to our show on itunes and while you're there leave us a comment we'd love to know what you think at the same time, don't forget to check out our sister show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. And by the way, if you want to read more about the Iditarod, check out our website, popularmechanics.com podcasts. On the website, you can also subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening. Tap or light. <laughs>